0: Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com deathdyingpod. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today's episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things is also brought to you by BarkBox.com. Get one free extra month of BarkBox at getbarkbox.com deathdyingpod you're listening to the Modern Horrors Podcast Network. Just a quick shout-out to patrons Daniel Smith and Diadarko for supporting the show on Patreon. It means a lot. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com death, dying, and other things. Any little bit helps. Now, on to the show. On last month's show, I talked about things hidden in bodies of water. This month, I want to talk about things underground. More specifically, I want to talk about things hidden underground, deep underground, and an experiment carried out there. Let's get straight to the fiction, and to a story I had a lot of fun writing and am eager to tell. This month, on Death, dung, and Other Things, a single story. In unfathomable depths, an experiment in a secret facility goes horribly wrong. and dying. The thresholds between this world and the next. The boundary between light and dark. The barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We're going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From the Modern Horrors Podcast Network, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. It took half an hour to walk the empty corridor to the center of Mount Adams. The corridor started at the small parking lot at the base of the mountain, the one only accessible by dirt road, the turnoff for which was hidden by brush and debris. The small lot has enough spaces for four cars, exactly the number of staff that man this small outpost. The corridor is floored with linoleum and painted a dull green-gray like so many other government buildings, and the underpowered fluorescence casts sickly light down the length of it. Alex Wegner, as he did often on the walk through this corridor, thought of a hundred ways to make the journey more pleasant, or at least swift. Golf carts at either end, a moving walkway like in fancy airports, a trolley system, anything. But... He never could get anyone in the chain above him to care much about saving four people in the mountains an hour of walking a day. And Alex always ended up considering. The bright side was an hour of brisk walking reduced his risk of heart attack at least. There were a lot of things Alex knew about this walk. He knew he would switch the hand he carried his heavy case in three times throughout the walk down this corridor around once every ten minutes. Unless the day prior had been especially tough, or he had slept particularly badly, then he'd pass his case from hand to hand four or even five times. He knew he'd walk just over 3,000 steps by the time he exited this corridor. This number didn't change much from day to day. He knew there were eight rows of just over 9,000 linoleum tiles down the length of the corridor and he knew he'd walk under 905 fixtures of fluorescent lights. He knew the walk took him on average one half of one hour, but depending on his quality of sleep, or the traffic he sat in driving out of the city, or the realities of his workday, he might take 25 or 37 minutes to walk the length. He'd never taken 38 minutes, and the only times he'd broken 25 He'd jogged parts or all of that long corridor with linoleum floors and green gray walls. This obsession with detail is what made Alex Wagner the perfect member of this four person team. He always thought of his job as, perhaps, the most important part of this operation, and if pressed, he was certain his coworkers would agree. Alex Wagner was always the first to arrive in the morning. He had to be. His job was painfully meticulous and took hours, so for everything to get rolling on time, he arrived at least three hours earlier than the next person on his team. Arriving at the far end of the corridor that tunneled straight into Mount Adams, Alex found a large vault door. Heavy and made of thick iron, there was a certain way the vault door had to be opened in order to keep everyone safe. First were the words, three short phrases in a language Alex didn't speak. Alex wasn't even sure what the words meant, but he was taught them by somebody much more important than him, and so he dutifully repeated them every single day before unlocking the padlock that locked the chain that held the wheel that opened the door. And once he spun the wheel, Alex took a deep breath hoped out loud that nothing had changed overnight, and swung open the perfectly balanced vault door. Inside the vault doors is where his real work began. The scene that greeted him every day was so immense that he shivered each time he stepped out onto the top of the scaffolding that greeted him, and the scaffolding met his steps with trembling of its own. He peered down into the nothingness below, a void created by the perfectly carved cylindrical chasm beneath his feet. He reached over to the stone wall, pushed a large blue button there, and far too few light bulbs switched on, creating the appearance of a sparse field of stars in that space beneath the mountain. This was all the light that was allowed down here. The three consecutive arrivals would be free to use the large freight elevator that was immediately to Alex's right, but he couldn't. Alex, to do his job, would need to go left and take the scaffolding's long labyrinth of stairs and ladders up and down and around the massive cylindrical pit. It would take him two hours to descend and inspect each of the massive arcane symbols painted on the wall in glow paint. He didn't know what they meant, or even who had painted them, but he had a manual that inventoried each symbol in his heavy case, which he retrieved, and then he set the case, Sans' manual, down in the elevator, and sent the elevator to the bottom of the chasm. There were thirty symbols in all. Seals was a more apt description, he thought. Emblems, maybe. Circular or triangular or square, and filled with runes or hieroglyphs or cuneiform or something of the sort. He was no linguist. Each one was different, but somehow the same. A different variety of shapes, but visually, each rhymed. Each one seemed to be telling the same story in a different language. And so he descended and inspected each of these glowing signs and matched each one to the example in his manual. When he was done checking the last, he was only about a quarter of the way down the massive pit, but there was another small elevator at the end of his path which only he ever used. Emily Tanaka had arrived at the bottom by the time Alex's elevator arrived. I grabbed your bag out of the elevator for you, she said. She smiled and pointed to the corner of the command room where Alex, Emily, and the two others that had yet to arrive would spend the majority of their day. Emily was the systems admin. She kept the computers down here running. Because they were cut off from the outside world by design, there was no connection to the internet to maintain, but they did operate a small intranet, which Emily made sure was always up. Here, at the bottom of the pit, was this command room, where each elevator offloaded. This room was carved further into the rock of Mount Adams, beyond the parameters of the massive cylindrical pit. Its three outer walls were the carved mountain stone, and the fourth, five inches of steel, with a viewport of acrylic sheeting, meant to withstand thousands of pounds of force. Alex rummaged through his heavy case and retrieved the next tool he required to perform the next part of his job before his portion of the day's activity would be mostly concluded. That is, until he locked up for the night. He hoisted a massive iron wrench just as the elevator sprung to life again, beginning its long journey to the bottom of the pit, probably, Alex guessed, with Mike Galloway. Mike was the de facto leader of this team of four. He observed, commanded, and recorded the outcomes of each experiment and then relayed them to whoever he relayed them to. Alex thought back over the last several years worth of experiments, how close they had gotten and how promising it all seemed at times, and then thought about Mike in some government building somewhere trying to explain to some bureaucrat why their research had stalled again when they were so close. Alex did not envy it. Going in? Emily asked. Alex nodded and held up his wrench as an answer. Emily hit a few keystrokes on the keyboard in front of her as Alex grabbed a gas mask from the wall nearby a small hatch and secured it to his face. Ready? she asked. Alex gave a thumbs up. Emily hit a few more keystrokes, and the lock disengaged from the hatch. Alex muscled the wheel to the left, spun it several rotations, and then pushed the iron door into the airlock, which he slipped inside of. And when he closed the iron door, it automatically locked him in. Down here, the pit was cold and quiet. The air was thick palpably so. To Alex, it felt like trying to walk through waist-deep water. And it was noxious, hence the gas mask. A cocktail of a dozen or so gases that could kill Alex in seconds if he took off his mask. The most striking thing about the bottom of the pit, though, to Alex, was the clarity. The air wasn't just clear, it was like looking through a pair of brand new glasses. The air here at the bottom of the pit was like a lens, focusing attention to the center of the cylinder where Alex was currently headed. But there was a second type of clarity here, too, at the bottom of the pit. A clarity of mind. Alex, from the moment he stepped through the airlock, felt his brain get noticeably sharper. He could suddenly deduce problems he'd been pondering for weeks and even others he hadn't yet thought of. He could inventory each decision he'd made in the past day, week, month, and see how they would unfold in the coming days, weeks, and months. How they would affect his life and the lives of those around him. He could remember moments from his life he had long forgotten to time, He could formulate plans that would get him anything he wanted, money, fame, and he would be sure of the outcome. And, of course, none of this mattered, because he was forbidden from bringing recording devices, cameras, cell phones, pens, pencils, notebooks, scraps of paper, anything that he may have been able to use to jot down any of these profound thoughts, and heartbreakingly, as soon as he left the pit through the airlock, He would forget it all. He reached the center of the pit and the ten-foot ring of iron bolted to the floor there. He always admired this piece of craftsmanship in particular, of all the pieces of machinery and bits of tech in this colossal abyss. This one was made by hand. A ring of solid iron, four inches wide and an inch thick, Alex could see each hammer mark, made by some blacksmith he didn't know how long ago. The thing was held in place by 113 seven-inch bolts plunged into the stone of Mount Adams every four inches. In between each bolt, roughly two inches across, were similar symbols and signs as the one Alex had already checked, etched into the iron by the same blacksmith. Alex dropped to his knees and grabbed the first bolt with his wrench, throwing his weight into it. He repeated this 112 more times as Emily Tanaka and soon Mike Galloway and Vivian Campbell watched through the viewport, waiting for him to complete his check and give them the go-ahead to proceed. Walking back into the command room through the airlock, Alex said good morning to both Mike and Vivian. Vivian Campbell ran the experiments. She knew how to get the tech down here to do what it needed to do, and while Mike may be technically calling the shots, Vivian would be the hardest member of the four-person team to replace or something happened to her. She studied geology, held a PhD in planetary science, and graduated top of her class. it was specifically what she didn't study in school that made her twice as valuable. Vivian had a long history, going back to her high school years, of dabbling in seeing, witchcraft, and communing with beings in other planes of existence. That, plus her scientific training, gave her what she called a unique insight into the extra-dimensional beings of Earth. And not only that, but several working theories as how we might harness those beings for our benefit. Vivienne was selected by Mike and the rest of the faceless government benefactors of this project for that unique skill set, and Alex knew that without Vivienne, as much as Mike liked to believe otherwise, Vivienne was as close to indispensable as they come. Alex returned the wrench to its place in his case, and settled in toward the back of the command room. Here, he'd watch the day's proceedings until it was time to lock up. Occasionally, Vivian or Emily would ask him to man a terminal or hit a few keys on a keyboard somewhere, but those events happened rarely. Vivian and Mark, Alex began to notice after shoving the oversized wrench into his bag, were arguing, hushed but animated, back near the elevators. Emily pretended not to notice— focusing on the monitor in front of her, but Alex saw her glance toward the pair every couple minutes. This was not that unusual. Alex estimated the power struggle between the two boiled over every several weeks, but this particular episode lasted longer than usual. Five, ten, then fifteen minutes of hushed bargaining, punctuated with wild hand movements from Vivian and aggressive pointing from Mark, but neither backed down. Alex removed his illustrated manual and pretended to brush up on protocol, a move Emily immediately saw right through. She caught Alex's eyes and smirked, which Mark then saw, interpreted as further insubordination, and then raised his voice. "'Excuse me, but what is so funny?' Mark asked. "'What?' Emily asked. "'You're laughing. Do you think this is funny?' You think it's funny Mrs. Campbell can't follow simple orders, Mark asked. I didn't, Emily began to say. Don't take this out on her, Vivian said, getting between Emily and Mark. Hold on, Emily said, now raising her voice. I don't need you to protect me. Vivian turned to face Emily. No, I didn't mean, she said, but was again interrupted by Mark. You know what? I don't give a shit. Both of you shut the fuck up. We have work to do. Excuse me? Vivian started back in on Mark. Shut the fuck up? I don't think so. Where do you think you'd be without me? You'd have a giant fucking hole in the ground you'd spent a billion dollars on and nothing to show for it. Vivian, no one's doubting your... Emily began to say, but Vivian reeled around to face her and yelled over her. And now you're going to come to my aid? Shut the fuck up and sit down, Miss Tanaka. I'll let you know when your skills are required to proceed. Emily zipped up her jacket, tightened her lips, and sat back down in front of her terminal. Emily's interjection had breathed new life into the disagreement between Mark and Vivian. They were now in a full-on shouting match, Mark demanding that Vivian do exactly what he's ordering, and Vivian fighting back, insisting she be treated as his equal and that her opinion be taken into account. Alex agreed with Vivian, but at that moment, he was far more concerned that they were all breaking one of the cardinal rules of operating this site. He stood and walked to the viewport and saw, through the clear acrylic, exactly what he had hoped he would not see. There, within the iron ring, the stone had disappeared, and a sickly blue light now shone out of the darkness. This was not an unusual sight for the interior of the ring. Their machinery elicited this response on most days. It was the circumstance of the response that alarmed Alex. Their machinery was not yet running. He turned to face Vivian and Mark, now practically shouting in each other's faces. Do you not see a problem with your behavior? Alex yelled at them. They stopped yelling at each other and turned to Alex, fire in each of their eyes, ready to unite and unload their frustration onto him when he headed them off. Rule two is specific in its instructions. No heightened emotions allowed within the sight, he said, reminding everyone, including himself. He lowered his voice and took a breath. We're already seeing a response inside, Alex said. Oh shit, Vivian said. Yeah. Oh shit, Alex repeated. See anything else in there? Mark asked. Just the normal aspect shift within the iron containment, Alex said, while turning back to the viewport to get another look. Startled, he shouted back to them. No, no, it's not normal, he said, correcting his earlier statement. What is it? Vivian asked. We've only seen this a few times, Alex said. It's bulging. Vivian and Mark hurried to Alex's side, and all three of them crammed their faces into the viewport. The blue light within the iron circle was, in fact, bulging. The iron ring acted like a bubble wand, and the blue light within it protruded upward into the deep pit underneath Mount Adams. Shit, 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 Vivian repeated. We all need to calm down, Alex said. Emily, what do you got? Vivian asked. Emily typed a few furious lines into her terminal. More energy than we usually see, she said. By how much? Mark asked. Ten percent? Jesus, Alex said. Alex, I need you on terminal two, okay? Vivian said, taking charge. Alex hurried over to the terminal. Emily Tanaka was dead before his hands hit the keyboard. Alex looked over to her as she convulsed, some strange power coursing through her body. Ripples tore through her skin, splitting her body open. Emily's blood covered the terminal in front of her, seeped into the cracks in the electronics, and shorted out Terminal 1. Fuck, Mark yelled, startling Alex. Shit, Emily, shit, Vivian said as she hurried to Emily's side, careful not to touch her. Oh my god. Oh my god, Alex found himself mumbling. Mark, I need you on Terminal 4, Vivian said. Mark had turned to peer through the viewport and didn't respond. Mark! Fuck! Terminal 4! Vivian sat down at Terminal 3 and began furiously typing. Alex, do you remember the shutdown sequence, she asked. Alex, of course, did. Sure, he said, still reeling, still a little dumbfounded. All right, she said start executing it while I try to contain the thing. Everything was all right in your inspection this morning? Yes, Alex said. Good, Vivian said. This is it. Are we going to die here? Alex asked. Probably, she said. Alex got to work. The shutdown sequence was 12 steps long and involved shutting down power to the pit's systems one by one in a certain order. Alex was through the first two shutting down power to the auxiliary terminals and shutting down power to the lights at the top of the pit when Mark interrupted. Hey. You two should see this. Alex stopped typing while Vivian hit a last few keystrokes to finish out a command. Alex stood and walked over to join Mark at the viewport with Vivian shortly behind. His heart sank into his feet when he got a look inside. The bulge had completely protruded through the iron ring, and what had emerged now floated thirty feet above the floor of the pit. A perfect, pale blue sphere, casting a sickly glow across the carved stone. In the center of the sphere was a dark silhouette, which Alex barely made out. He pointed it out to Vivian. Jesus Christ, she said. No, I don't think so, Mark said. Alex, you're absolutely sure the seals are intact, Vivian asked. And on cue, as if it was listening, the thing inside the sphere exploded out of it, tearing through the air toward the top of the pit. In fact, Alex hadn't been perfect in the job he had performed that morning. Alex... The detail-oriented, inventorying Alex Wagner had missed one important detail during his morning's descent. Groundwater had forced its way through the rock in just the right spot, splitting the paint on the lowest seal and allowing whatever it was they had summoned to escape. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Busky. The story, Unfathomable Depths, was written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Busky. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warmke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to the Earth's crust and heightened emotions. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a member of the Modern Horrors podcast network. Check out all the other great shows new episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows.